So Albert will be going through Daniel 1 through 7 today. Um, and I'm just going to read that out for us. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judea, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judea, into his hands with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury with his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, empowered with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them to daily portions of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among them were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judea. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Bel Belsh Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. And Mishael, he called Mashish. Mishesh. Meshach. Let's go with Meshach. I'm going to pull the audience on that one. <laughs> and Azariah, he called Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin today by asking, um, what makes a good story? Um, think of maybe stories that you grew up with, um, fiction, um, little tales and so forth, or maybe as you tell stories amongst friends when you're amongst company and trying to <clears throat> tell a funny story or whatnot, what makes a good story? And there's something in common, actually, with every good story, every good story. In, in fact, um, it's not a big point for life, or, or maybe it is. I, I think it's even universal. It's woven by God into the fabric of life and the universe. And I, I think that, you know, if you want to make a theological argument, you don't have to try very hard because God himself is the story writer. He's writing history. Now, what makes a good story then? Let me get to the point. It's what even non-Christian uh, English uh, teachers and professors and so forth call the story arc. Okay, so just a quick little English lesson um, before we move on and really get to the text. And basically, it, it goes like this. There's always a beginning, a middle, and an end. And at the beginning, hopefully you can see that, there's the status quo, basically describing how things are at the beginning of the story, the characters introducing them. But then quickly, there's incidents that happen and starts to um, create tension. And there's rising tension because maybe a problem has entered, conflict has entered, and whatnot. And then that story, if it's a good story, it keeps progressing. The tension rises, rises, and then you hit a climax and to the point something has to happen here. Something has to happen so that there's resolution. And of course, every good story then, you feel good about the story. You're willing to continue on, whether it's watching that Netflix series or whatever, because there's 
enough resolution. And hopefully, and what we like is the happily ever after resolution that uh, where the story ends is better than when, uh, than when the story started. So <clears throat> clear example, just to illustrate this, that one that we're familiar with, the hare and the tortoise. Uh, status quo, the hare was making fun of the tortoise one day for being slow, and so tension rises. Uh, the hare is trash-talking the tortoise. Do you ever get anywhere? He asks with a mocking laugh. And the tortoise says, yes, and let's race to prove it that I think I can even be faster than you. And so the hare agrees. The fox becomes the judge, sets the start line, the finish line, and we know how the story goes. And so through that, uh, the tension is rising with the back and forth of the hare and the tortoise, and the race starts, and you're wondering what's going to happen. And then another incident happens. The hare is so arrogant that he takes a nap. And then you see the tortoise just going steadily along. And it reaches the climax where he passes. He passes the hare. And what's going to happen? Is the hare going to wake up or not? And we know that he doesn't. And the tortoise wins. And so Aesop, who wrote this originally, he even adds a moral to the resolution uh, that the race is not always to the swift. And so we feel happy for the underdog, or we should say the under turtle, uh, the under tortoise who, who wins and beats the hare. Now, if you think about your lives, even right now and where you're at, maybe tension you're feeling, I'm pretty confident if you look at your life through this lens of the story arc, the narrative arc, as some people say, you'll be able to place yourself somewhere along this arc, and you're probably longing for some resolution. As I've already said before, with God, it's no different. And I think it's because it actually is a part of his image and how he's created the world. And, and so that's why we um, have something for story in our hearts and we um, are attracted to the good stories. And so the Bible story, it's no different. Literally, in the beginning, there was a beginning and there's creation. And so the broad strokes of the Bible story, then after there's the middle and incidents happen, the fall, the serpent enters the garden and there was the status quo, the beautiful, peaceful, utopic status quo of the garden. And then the fall happens. Adam and Eve fall. They sin. They disobey and sin, disease, death, enter creation. And so we're looking in terms of just the grand story of history for a climax. And really that comes to Jesus Christ entering history. And we're hoping, especially as uh, mentioned by Zach, those darkest days when Jesus hung on the cross and then he died. And we're wondering what's going to happen. The disciples had thought the story ended there. And so they were despondent. They were depressed. They were hiding. But we know that God, he resolves his climax by resurrecting Jesus. And so now where we are at in history, we're not there yet. We're looking for the end. We're waiting for the end. And so the Christ follower understands that the, the plight of humanity, we've all been banished from the garden. And so that's why there should be some sense of, even as established as you might be at your address right now, there should be some sense of still longing for home, searching for home, because we're all banished from our original home. And even as Christ has come, we're waiting there's still that tension from redemption and how is it going to all be resolved? The kingdom is here, but not yet. Now, a little part of that then, that 
grand story is Israel's story. And so Israel, we know just starting, let's stay uh, starting from Moses, leading them out from slavery, from Egypt. And it's a wonderful, beautiful story. There's uh, tension rising and climax and resolution in that story in and of itself. But just to extend the story of Israel, we know that they're given uh, the law through Moses, but their continued history, basically, they keep breaking covenant. If, if you read through the Old Testament, you're just banging your head against the wall like, why? Why are you doing this? It's so clear and obvious what God has asked you to do and who to be, but why do you keep turning your back on God and His steadfast love, His faithfulness, and you keep breaking covenant? Now, God, being, again, the story writer, he knew this would happen. And so even in Moses' law, specifically Leviticus chapter 26, he lays it out. He says, if you obey me, then there will be all these blessings. But if you disobey me, and God says that there will be sevenfold punishment, that there will be seven stages, so to speak, and the very lowest point of God punishing them for covenantal unfaithfulness is in verse 33 and i read and i will scatter you among the nations and i will unsheath the sword after you and your land will be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste and so god prophesied through moses hey if you keep breaking covenant there's going to come a day where you'll be exiled and therefore we know that that's one, as one part of Israel's story. That's, part of the, that's a climax. They were exiled. It happened. It happened in uh, 605, the first group of people that were taken away. And Daniel was part of that group. Okay? Was part of that group. And what Daniel was longing for, and really Israel's story, is still our story. That's why we can look back to Daniel as New Testament exiles, Peter says clearly to the church, to Christ's followers, that we are exiles. And so we can look back to Daniel, and Israel's story is really still the church's story. And so we're looking to Jesus to restore his kingdom fully and perfectly one day. But thankfully, what is different from Daniel's time is it doesn't depend on so much our covenantal faithfulness. Yes, we need to finish. We need to persevere. We need to keep faith. But it's all by God's grace through Christ now. And so, Daniel in 605, uh, he's taken away. And he's trying to figure out what it means to be a Yahweh worshiper, a Yahweh follower. And really, that's just synonymous for you and me because Yahweh is... The, the same God as the Father, Son, and Spirit. Yahweh is the Father. And Daniel is seeking, then we can say, as a, a continuation of Daniel and his faith, um, seeking to what it means to be a Christ follower, to be a Yahweh follower in a land, in a culture that is so antagonistic and contrary to what God has called him to uh, be. And we see, and we'll get to Jeremiah more in depth, at a later sermon, but Jeremiah 29, uh, eight years after Daniel's been taken, Jeremiah uh, writes to the exiles and gives even further instruction of what it looks like to live in exile as a Yahweh follower, a Yahweh worshiper. And so here are these 
two people and, and Daniel. Today we'll specifically focus on Daniel. Uh, and really we'll we can turn there Ezekiel, Esther, some hundred years later, uh, is also trying to figure this out. And so we'll hit these characters. But all in all, and all the more today focusing on Daniel, what I hope you'll take away, what I hope will be stirring in your heart as we look to uh, Daniel's example, is Lord, help me be your faithful witness in the world, but not of it. Lord, help me be your faithful witness. Faithful witness. That, that I would continually looking for ways and opportunities to testify to my hope in Jesus Christ. As I figure out how to live in this world, but not of it. Now that phrase, if you've read the Gospel of John, should sound familiar because Jesus uses that very wording. He prays for his disciples, Lord, I pray that you not so much take them out of the world that they, as they remain in the world, but that they would not be of it as they follow me. And so another way to put it is, Lord, help me to be your faithful ambassador. Maybe this imagery will help you. What is an ambassador literally, politically? It's a citizen servant of a nation who seeks to represent the government, the king, the prime minister, president, whoever it may be, to the best of his or her ability in a foreign nation. And so the citizenship is certain. It's of the motherland back home. But they're living in that foreign nation and seeking to represent that king, that prime minister, that government, the best of their ability and the best relations with that foreign nation without compromising the agenda, the message of the king back home. So do you have that mentality? Maybe you can connect a little bit more with that whole notion of ambassador, being an ambassador for Christ. And so I want to ask for the rest of uh, our time in uh, Daniel today, what can we learn from Daniel about being a Yahweh follower in exile? What can we learn from Daniel about being an ambassador for the Trinity God, Father, Son, and Spirit? And I just want to, I hope you'll see two things with me. Just want to draw out two things. First, um, Jesus is Lord of history. That's the first big idea. And second, um, what the prayer said. Therefore, the action step, let's seek to be faithful witnesses in the world, but not of it. So first, as exiles, as ambassadors, Christ followers trust. This is huge. This is foundational every day. It needs to be the air we breathe. It needs to be somewhere always in the, the backdrop uh, of your mind and your thoughts and your, and your outlook on life. As exiles, Christ followers trust that Jesus is Lord over history. That he is Lord over history. It's a very basic Christian idea, but it is so essentially foundational. And so to put it another way, just what that looks like very practically, if you really truly trust that the, Jesus is Lord over history, what that should look like, and we'll draw it out from the text in a, in a moment, um, do your best, do your best by God's grace 
to go out and live your life fully as a faithful witness, but then rest in God's grace. So for the Christian, for the genuine, uh, sincere Christ follower, there should be something in our hearts. I want to make the most of what God is, what his grace allows me to do. Whatever he's endowed me with, whatever gifts, whatever time, whatever energy, all by God's grace, and then to rest in his grace, meaning trying to live life fully for Christ, but not losing our faith through it. Because there's that tension, because you can pursue life, try to live life fully, but in the pursuit of a full life, you, many people lose faith. And so doing our best by God's grace and all the while resting in his grace, meaning God's grace all the way through. Now, where do we see this? So first here, uh, in the third year of the reign of Joy, King, king of Judah. And that's how the uh, scholars and commentators and historians, um, they're able to date Daniel to 605 uh, B.C. And uh, we see here that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And so again, this is God being faithful and following through what he warned in Leviticus 26. That very word besieged it, that, that history there. Now, when you read besieged it in the third year, what you need to understand is that um, scholars, they do their best to date Moses back to around 1500 BC. So God, he delivers Israel from Egypt. He says, you're my chosen people. I've loved you uh, as, as a child. I'm your father. And he's given them this promised land. And he gives them the covenant, the law, around 1500 BC. And then the exile is 605 BC, so approximately 900 years, okay? 900 years. I was going over this uh, with my kids, and they said, wow, that, that was pretty harsh of God that he would just let them go into exile. Actually, to the contrary, he was patient for 900 years, and both of them in symphony, oh, <laughs> right? It's like, God is a lot more patient than you, Dad. <laughs> 900 years of patience on God's part. If you read Leviticus and the warnings, there's, again, I said seven stages of God punishing and trying to warn. His, his, his spirit is warning, saying, please come back. And for 900 years, he appealed to his people, come back, come back. And he kept sending prophets and servants say, come back. I love you with an unfailing love. Come back to me for 900 years. So this is not a mean God. This is, even in our stories, we have loved ones. We love them so deeply, but they make, keep making choices. And, and we come to a point where we just need to let them face the consequences. And so God is no different that way. He really is full of love. And so Jesus being Lord of history, we want to understand Jesus is the merciful Lord over my history of covenant breaking. So even in your short life, 
Even if you're in your 80s here, 90s, your life is short. Relatively speaking, it's short. Now just take that, have perspective. How patient God has been with you and me in our own personal record of covenant breaking. And so thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God that his grace is sure and just looks over our sins as we come back to him again and again, repentant and saying, I need your grace to humbly uh, admit that. Owing to God's covenantal faithfulness, his merciful, being a merciful Lord over history, we see God is extremely patient and long-suffering with his people Israel, warning them through his prophets over centuries of dire consequences of habitual covenantal disobedience. And so here, as Daniel is recording this history, uh, as best as we know, Daniel penned this. And so Daniel understood what Peter meant, meaning there's no discontinuity between what Peter is writing to uh, New Testament exiles and the lessons that God was trying to teach to his people in the old. And so Daniel understood what Peter meant by, in this you rejoice. And I'll, I'll read the verse here. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Daniel understood it, that God ultimately is trying to bring his people back to himself. Daniel understood, as we read his prayer later in chapter 9, we'll get to it eventually in the year, that the Lord, and it's a beautiful, profound prayer, so I encourage you to read it ahead of time. I think it's a model prayer for us as Christians. Um, Daniel understood, evidence in his prayer in chapter 9, that the Lord was disciplining his people. Daniel embraced the trials, understanding God was maturing them into his true people. And so again, the, the, the message of Peter is in Daniel. As you're facing various trials, what's your perspective on that suffering? And do you trust you trust that god is lovingly trying to mature you into greater christ likeness now we see even more aspects of uh, jesus being lord over history and verse two daniel says so clearly and he makes this absolutely in the second verse of his writing and the lord gave jehoiakim king of judah into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And uh, in, in the Hebrew, the word, when it says uh, the house of God, it should actually read and the house of the God, meaning there's only one true God. And so here's the one true God of the universe who created the universe. And Daniel wants his readers to consider this truth that it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar and all his might that he decided on his own will, I'm going to take over Israel. No, ultimately, God allowed it. God incited it. And so the Lord gave Israel over. And even the Lord himself giving some of the vessels of the temple. And all the more, these vessels from the temple, where were they placed? This place, Shinar. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. Uh, historians believe this is actually the location of the Tower of Babel, meaning the, the epicenter of Babylon. 
And what is that the epicenter of in terms of a spirit? It's the spirit of man vying to be God. That they can reach the heavens by their own merit and their own work and to be greater than God. So there's something um, confusing going on here. I mean, who of you personally like to just actually self-shame or self-deprecate? Like truly, truly. But God is doing something of the sorts. He's allowing, at least in public perception, the optics of this is that God is weak because what was traditional during the time when nations would plunder other nations, they would take objects from the temple that represented their God and as trophies of war, place them in their God's temples the, 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 the under, by the idols. And this act symbolized the supremacy of the deities conquering over the nation and the gods of the people that uh, they're conquering. And so God knew what this would look like. God knew that from a PR standpoint, basically his name is being lessened by this, but he allows it. What's going on there? Something to think about, that, that our God is a God who is not afraid to be found lowest. And of course, that foreshadows how he would save us. Now, I want you to think of it this way. If you're feeling a little bit um, insecure about this, you know, God allowing this to happen. If you have ever played the board game Risk, um, I think it's a fun game. And um, playing it with uh, my boys especially and, and when I was a youth pastor, uh, I would always start in uh, Australia. And it was all mind games. It was like, Pastor Albert, why are you starting in the smallest place? You know, and But my agenda was always, I want to first take over Korea because that's my background, just own my motherland. <laughs> But I would always, inevitably, I, I'm not trying to brag or whatever, just maybe just my adult mind, knowing how to sort of play with the youth, youth mind, I'd always win. But even though I, I always won, even though I always won, it was messy. I'd have to lose some battles, give up some countries, even give up Australia at some point, right? Even sometimes give up my motherland, you know, in Asia. Um, and it would be this ebb and flow, back and forth, but eventually I would win, right? And, and that's how we need to think in the biggest picture possible that the Lord gave. The Lord gave even his people over. And even in your life, perhaps, you're going through a season where it feels like, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen? But the Christ follower, the Yahweh worshiper, like Daniel, like Peter, understands, okay, there might be various trials, but I am going to trust my entire life into your hands. And as I follow you and just seek to be a faithful witness, I'm going to trust that you're going to work it out for your glory first. And well, however it works out, that this is your grace in my life, I will be glad with it and um, just trust you for it. And so, not only is Jesus the merciful Lord 
over history and the history of our covenantal unfaithfulness, but Jesus is the sovereign Lord over every event, over every event in history. This, I think, is one of the most stabilizing anchors you can have in your life. If you want to be unstable, just stay plugged into the news, read every headline. It will depress you eventually. It'll make you anxious. It'll make you angry. It, but So even if you do that, if you stay connected to this grand, beautiful truth that God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are sovereign Lord over every event in history, then nothing is insignificant in your life. Even the smallest incident has significance for your maturity. And every day will be an important day. Every second will be an opportunity to grow and deepen your faith in Christ and grow in your character in Christ, to love your neighbor as Christ has loved you, to depend on God. And while some tests and trials in your life may feel overwhelming, all of them, all of them truly, truly have eternal implications. And so Daniel understood what Peter meant when Peter said, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, and then a few phrases later, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, meaning God is sovereign. And I can't do anything without his grace. Through and through, my life depends on his grace. And so this should lead to understanding that as exiles, Christ followers seek to be faithful witnesses. Do you get it? Okay, God is sovereign. He's Lord over history. And even what seems like setbacks and the suffering, these various trials, God has a purpose. The Lord gave these things to happen. He has caused these things to happen according to his foreknowledge. And therefore, I'm going to rest in that. And, and so... What's left for me to do? I, I just need to seek to continue to be a faithful witness. And what, is that, what that means concretely is to figure out how to live in this world fully for Christ without losing your faith, but not being of the world. And so we begin to see some of this uh, in the lives of Daniel. And uh, I encourage you, I think maybe if, especially if you've maybe grown up in the church, been around the church for some time, it's easier to remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But as I understand Daniel uh, more and more, I think we do them in honor if we remember them by their Hebrew names. And so Daniel, Hananiah, um, Mishael, and Azariah. And let me try to explain why. Then the king commanded uh, Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, uh, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family, of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. And maybe this might even serve as sort of a good summary, and competent, full of competency to stand in the king's palace. And so I, I've already said it before when earlier I said, do your best by God's grace, and then just rest 
in his grace. Because even when we pursue our best, we're going to underperform. We're going to make mistakes. Uh, and so if you're pursuing the idol of excellence and perfection, you're setting yourself up for guilt and shame and disappointment. So just do your best by God's grace. Put it a different way. Be faithful in seeking to maximize what God has given you with the grace God has given you. Okay? I, I, I want to make that clear, that point clear and emphasize it. Jesus tells a story about the three servants and the talents and them being faithful with that too. I think God does care about us trying to be fruitful and to multiply the grace that he's given to us. And so with what he has given you, to continue to maximize. And we see that, at least in Daniel and his uh, three friends' lives, that they had gotten to a point that they even had, they, they, they actualized and maximized the mind that God had given them. And perhaps maybe even their bodily strength and so forth, but being faithful with what opportunities God had given them. Of course, not everyone is given grace to, to be a scholar per se, like Daniel and his three friends. Whatever grace God has given you, whatever work he has given you, whatever you can do well, do it well for Christ. Be faithful in that way. Whether it's something in the home, making a home, being a student, um, doing trades, what, what, whatever work it may be. Nothing is nothing good and wholesome and beautiful and true is, is, is what's what I'm trying to think, is, is, um, you know, just count it out. Now here with Daniel specifically and his three friends, God had given them a grace to uh, be able to comprehend, to learn, to use their mind. And so they were selected. And so the courts of Babylon were teaching them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Basically, think of them being given a full scholarship to go to the best university and to learn, to be equipped with the culture, the intelligence, the knowledge of the day. Also being given all the delicacies of the day. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated, much like our undergrad uh, timeline. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And so, just to, again, put it differently, be faithful in seeking to maximize what God has given you with the grace he has given you, but without losing your faith. Because there have been even many well-intending Christians who are trying to maximize their life, but then in the busyness of it, or their hearts become idolatrously, uh, idolatrously attached to those pursuits and sports, losing their faith. Now, we see this point all the more, this point of not losing your faith as you seek to be faithful in the names of these four precious uh, brothers in the faith. Among there were, were Daniel. Daniel means God is my judge. And I have to answer to God alone on that final day. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Mishael means, who is what God is? 
There's only one God, and he is separate from us. He is to be worshipped and revered. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. Now, what we see is that Daniel and the three were given Babylonian names. Belteshazzar means, uh, and they were all names related to the Babylonian gods, that Marduk, or Bel, Marduk, protect his life. Shadrach means the command of Aku, the Sumerian moon god. Meshach means who is what Aku is, another false god. Abednego means servant of Nego, another idol. So make no mistake, as we are in exile, I'm just saying this more as a matter of fact. Babylon, spiritually speaking, and spiritually speaking, we're still living in Babylon. The, the world, the culture that would seek to deny God as God. And Babylon is still spiritually alive and seeking to enculturate us. They tried to give them new names, new identities, diametrically opposite. Baked into the name was to reject their God, Yahweh, their, their Babylonian names. But there's a reason why Daniel, the book, is still called Daniel. And as you read through it, the best reading I can uh, do, my best reading, I see that uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah themselves still kept, that was their true name for themselves. And when they're called their Babylonian names, it's the Babylonians calling out to them. And so we, we need to just, every day, just, just be aware. What, what's the culture I live in? To have a discerning mind and, and to just ask questions to not just go with the flow, not just drink the Kool-Aid, not just breathe in the air of our culture, but to always be thinking through a gospel lens. And so it's always good to reflect, what is my truest name? What is my deepest identity? And for us, it might not be a name like Daniel in terms of just our religious affiliation, our, our affection for Christ, but really, especially if you've been baptized, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Is that your truest name? Does that inform your deepest identity? Now, make no mistake as well, God's goal is for us to be faithful witnesses in the world, but not of it. And so at this time, I, I want to especially make an appeal to um, both flesh and blood families and our spiritual family as a church. What and who shaped Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to become stalwarts of the faith? Because as you read Daniel, you see that they persevered. They, they did it. They, they accomplished by grace. They kept the faith. And they were faithful witnesses in the world, but not of it. And still even figuring out how to relate and play I mean, to give you a preview, they got to high places in that society. They had immense influence. Even Daniel becoming third in command of Babylon, the empire of Babylon. 
and that yet they did not lose faith. They kept faith. So what and who shaped Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to become stalwarts of faith? We have to understand that they were probably anywhere from 13 to 19 years old when they were deported. And even at somewhere in that age range, to have the, the kind of rock-solid faith, and to be able to even to speak confidently to kings and chief of eunuchs and so forth, what and who shaped them? Now, even the godliest parenting is no guarantee for producing Daniels. But at the same time, I, 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 I put, you know, I'm pretty confident that back home, that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that they had families who were seeking to live out Deuteronomy 6. To talk about God's word and his law as they sit and as they walk. And to let the kids ask questions and to teach them. To tell them the story of how God saved them. And by his grace brought them out of Egypt. And on and on and on. But who knows? We don't know the exact history. Maybe Daniel's dad was a dud. Maybe his mom was a dud. And yet still there was a community. A faith community that produced these just such pure integrity and clear identity, so confident to stand up and to be able to navigate the culture and to play their faithful witness out. And so parents, again, it's godly parenting is no guarantee to produce Daniels, but nevertheless, the onus is on us to do our part. And so if you're at a, um, well, whatever stage of family you are at, to, to press into the Lord and ask him for wisdom, how, wherever stage my child is at, whether they're young, they're grown-up children, how do I continue to play my role? And as a church, that we would come together, and, and we love that Trinity Grace is multi-generational, and we need the older, wiser um, men and women to build into the younger, even the middle-aged. I still need lots of wisdom. I learned so much from people that are older than me here. But I also learned from the people that are younger than me here. But meaning it's a whole community to keep spurring each other on to become witnesses like Daniel and the three. It's a story from my family this past week. And um, I just had a very frustrating moment um, uh, this past week, and I texted Linda out of frustration to vent my frustration. Uh, and it was pretty, uh, uh, you know, very, very clear that I was frustrated, even with the words that I used. And then the reply I get back on the phone is, God's grace, buddy, God's grace. And that didn't sound like Linda. So I said, Linda? Question mark, exclamation mark. I said, no, it's Emma. I was like, oh my goodness. Well, first, Emma has just seen dad vent his frustration. But then, actually, it turned into a moment of, thank you, Lord. I hope, well, you know what? All praise to you, God, that she's responding to me this way. 
and trying to point me back to God's grace as well. I guess I'm a buddy, huh? <laughs> but at the end of the day, it made me happy. And I, I hope in part, in small part, it's because Linda and I are trying to model, okay, we're trying to live by God's grace. Life is not easy. It gets messy. But we need God's grace. Hopefully I've modeled that enough that my daughter is reflecting that back on me in a very gracious way. But I also know it's because she's at Trinity Grace Church. And she has many of you building into her life as well and speaking truth into her life. And so Daniel, he understood what Peter meant. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And Daniel, even though everything concrete that represented God for him was literally stripped away and would even become destroyed a few years later. The temple would be destroyed later. There was a God that he knew loved him and therefore he wanted to love him back. And so I hope reflecting on Daniel and connecting him to the continual, the, the, the harmonious and um, same message to the whole Bible that we see through Peter, even Jesus, telling us to be in the world but not of it. I hope this prayer is in your heart, and I'll pray it for us as we close. Lord, help me be your faithful witness in the world but not of it.